This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, August 16th, 2022. I'm Kyle Kellams. You're tuned in to 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. The longest homestand of the summer for the Northwest Arkansas Naturals begins tonight at Arvest Ballpark, the first of 12 games over the next 13 days. After this homestand concludes on August 28th, just six games left in Springdale this year. Ahead this hour on Ozarks at Large, Rachel Sanchez-Smith talks with Erica Sanchez about her memoir, Crying in the Bathroom. First up today, in June, the United States Supreme Court ruled to end a 50-year constitutional protection to abortion, leaving it to individual state legislatures to control reproductive rights. 29 states so far have enacted restrictions or complete bans on abortion, including Arkansas, placing both medical clinicians and abortion seekers at criminal risk. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports. The U.S. Supreme Court in 1973 ruled access to safe medical abortion was a constitutional right. Fifty years later, data generated by the nonprofit pro-choice Guttmacher Institute counted close to a million medically supervised abortions being administered annually across the U.S. Post-Roe bans and restrictions enacted by pro-life state legislatures, however, is now forcing people with unintended or unwanted pregnancies to travel long distances for an abortion, self-manage their abortion at home, or carry their pregnancy to term with unknown consequences. At a recent press conference, Emily Whale, CEO of Planned Parenthood Great Plains, described the outcome of the Supreme Court decision as chaotic. Missouri and Oklahoma and Arkansas, where abortion is now almost entirely inaccessible and patients are often struggling to figure out whether contraception is legal, whether medical emergency care is available to them. Both abortion providers and people seeking to terminate their pregnancy are now targets, Wales said. Government being involved in your personal medical decisions, because that's what we're seeing in these other states, where the government decides whether it deems you worthy of getting care. Arkansas lawmakers who are majority male and white have banned emergency abortions as well, even in cases of rape and incest. The only exception is to preserve the life of the mother. And even in the medical exceptions cases, what we've seen is a great deal of confusion. But we've heard from colleagues and other providers in this work that they're confused and they're not sure when they can intervene to save a patient's life or at what point something is deemed a medical emergency. The Arkansas Department of Health is authorized to enforce the abortion ban, but declined to comment for this report. The agency did, however, share cease and desist notices mailed to two Arkansas abortion providers on June 24th, warning that performing a medical abortion is a felony punishable by up to 10 years in prison and a $100,000 fine. Taylor Riley is an epidemiology doctoral student at the University of Washington School of Public Health. She specializes in sexual and reproductive health research. There's a lot of fear about um, being criminalized for seeking abortion or providing abortion. Riley and several colleagues have been investigating the impact of abortion restrictions and criminalization on public health and health equity. 
leading up to the Supreme Court decision. Their initial findings, published by Washington University Newswire. So in the first uh, month following the Supreme Court decision that overturned Roe v. Wade, there were 11 states that had banned abortion completely or had implemented a six-week ban, and all of those states were in the South and the Midwest. Now that we're almost two months after that June 24th Dobbs decision, there are now 15 states that have banned abortion, uh, with more states expected to implement abortion bans soon. Riley says banning abortion will not stop abortion from occurring, and making it illegal will only lead to unsafe abortions. Half of all abortions in the U.S. before state bans were by medication, an FDA-approved two-pill clinical prescription. Clinical medication abortions, however, are increasingly being banned in certain states. That leaves people with unwanted or unintended pregnancies to self-manage their abortions by purchasing pills online. Self-managed abortion is medically safe. It is legally risky um, in the U.S. and in, in many states. So a new report by If, When, How, which is a group of lawyers and public health researchers, just came out uh, with a report that documented 61 cases between the years of 2000 and 2020 where people were criminally investigated or arrested for allegedly self-managing their own abortions or helping someone to do so. Riley and colleagues have been monitoring the collateral damage in Texas, where last September lawmakers banned abortion in cases where an embryonic fetal heartbeat can be detected. There was reporting show, um, that showed that people seeking miscarriage care were denied um, hospital-based care. And there was a recent article in the New England Journal of Medicine that interviewed clinicians and pregnant people who were seeking care in Texas uh, and found that uh, people with pregnancy complications or pre-existing medical conditions um, that could be exacerbated from a pregnancy, they're being forced to delay an abortion until their conditions become life-threatening. Riley says data show that a month after the Supreme Court decision, the number of reproductive health clinics, which also provided comprehensive health care, drastically declined in the U.S. And these clinic closures restrict access to essential health care for millions of people, and they really further deepen inequities in that access to care. The abortion bans, Riley says, are disproportionately affecting low-income individuals and families. Um, who are politically and socially marginalized because of their race, poverty, or immigration status. Riley points to the Turnaway study conducted by the University of California, San Francisco, as evidence. And the researchers found that people who were denied a wanted abortion experienced elevated levels of anxiety and stress, increases in poverty, debt, and evictions, and their existing children had worse child development outcomes compared to the children of people who were able to receive an abortion. More than 3,000 abortions were administered annually in Arkansas before the ban. Data show 41% of women in Arkansas age 15 to 49 have incomes below 200% of the federal poverty level. Arkansas also currently counts around 5,000 infants and children in foster care due to neglect, harm, or abandonment, a number expected to surge with more women delivering unwanted babies. Pro-life lawmakers are a misnomer. So lawmakers in states that are passing these anti-abortion laws are also the states that have not expanded Medicaid. They have declining numbers of maternity hospitals in rural areas. They have fewer evidence-based policies that support women and children's health. And overall, these states have worse maternal and child health outcomes. 
Arkansas ranked 47th in maternal mortality before the ban, which is expected to worsen. Planned Parenthood Great Plains CEO Emily Whale says reproductive health care is now gravely different. Patients and providers are more traumatized. And at the end of the day, many of the patients we see feel like their actions are criminalized. Even when these statutes do not target patients, there is a chilling effect where patients believe that something they're doing is not permissible and that they should feel shame or stigma about it. Karen Music is a co-founder and vice president of the nonprofit All Volunteer Arkansas Abortion Support Network. She says the ban's causing great turmoil. Disappointment, anger, frustration, mostly desperation. In the past month, I've heard of one woman who tried drinking bleach, and then after that failed, she tried soaking a tampon in bleach. And after that failed, she was able to get a hold of somebody, and uh, we were able to get her the help she needed. Before the ban, music and staff provided escort and financial assistance to women seeking abortions at places like Little Rock Family Planning and Planned Parenthood. Now, music and staff are assisting people to secure safe abortions in legal states. People are calling and making appointments. They're using the website I Need an A. It's INeedAnA.com. They tell the clinic that they are going to that they need some help. They need financial help or they need transportation help. Providing that help with an agreement with us for our portion of the financial expenses, along with the travel expenses. The average cost for a first trimester surgical abortion was less than $1,000 in Arkansas, Music says. But now patients who are able have to also pay for out-of-state travel, meals, and accommodations. With access to abortion medication now outlawed in Arkansas, Music and her team are also providing alternative guidance. We give out that information through Plan C, which is uh, www.plancpills.org, and aid access, A-I-D access, and they are uh, a .org. Listed are pharmacies in states with no abortion restrictions that can provide prescription abortion pills, as well as telehealth medical consults. People can also choose to self-manage their abortion with no medical guidance, ordering abortion pills online. Self-managed abortion is relatively new and increasingly outlawed so far in three states, South Carolina, Nevada, and Oklahoma, Even emergency hospital abortions, greatly restricted in Arkansas in recent years, are now banned. Prior to 2021, hospitals were allowed to do up to 10 abortions per month Um, on an emergency basis. It was kind of like, you know, the, the idea was to try to help people that have been in a car accident or something like that that needed immediate service. That was changed in 2021 to one abortion per month per hospital. So I don't know who is going to be doing abortions in the state of Arkansas after this. The emergency abortion ban does make one allowance. Their lives have to be at risk. That's, I don't know where that line is. It's not 
very clear. If I'm a woman and pregnant, I'm terrified. Several conservative southern states have also enacted fetal personhood laws, in effect conveying civil rights protection to embryos, criminalizing providers as well as people who attempt to or succeed at terminating that pregnancy. And with the Supreme Court decision ending constitutional protections for abortion, pro-choice advocates worry a constellation of new, even more extreme pro-life measures will be enacted, leading to legal covert criminal surveillance and tracking of pregnant women and girls. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. As a new school year is getting underway this week for many students across Arkansas, cases of COVID-19 are, for the most part, declining. Active cases fell yesterday to the lowest level in about a month and a half. State epidemiologist Dr. Mike Seema with the Arkansas Department of Health says this puts schools in a good position. We've had two school years under our belt here in Arkansas, and, you know, each progressively getting back to a sense of normal, whether whether or not we actually get back to normal remains to be seen. Um, but, you know, we, we know what works. Uh, we, we have our mitigation uh, measures. We, we know, you know, that distance, hand washing, mask wearing when appropriate. Uh, we have vaccines readily available. We, we have the tools in our tool chest to, to make sure that, you know, this disease does not present such a great burden as it has in the previous parts of the pandemic. The department reports active cases fell by more than 800 people in yesterday's count, with about 11,000 people said to be feeling the effects of the virus. Hospitalizations were up by seven people. 346 are being treated statewide. SEMA says subvariants of the Omicron variant continue to evolve in Arkansas. These viruses, in particular BA5, is extremely adept at evading prior immunity, whether it's natural immunity or vaccine-derived immunity. However, uh, what we're seeing is that immunity is still providing pretty robust protection against severe disease. That's evidenced by our diminished number of hospitalizations, the surge, compared to previous surges, as, as well as ICU emissions, ventilations, and deaths. No additional deaths were reported from COVID-19 yesterday. Talk Business and Politics reports Walmart is striking a deal with streaming service Paramount Plus. The Bentonville retailer will deliver the service free to Walmart Plus subscribers beginning next month. The deal is similar to one offered by rival Amazon that gives its premium subscribers Prime Video streaming for free. And the Arkansas Razorback football team opens the 2022 season ranked 19th in the Associated Press preseason poll. Nine Arkansas opponents on the 2022 schedule receive votes in that poll, including Arkansas's first opponent, number 23, Cincinnati. It's been three years since we were live at Roots Festival for Ozarks at Large. This is a live edition of Ozarks as part of the Fayetteville Roots Festival. But Friday, August 26th, we're back with a live radio show from the Fayetteville Public Library. Musicians at this year's Roots Festival will join us on the library's new event center stage. Join us in person or live right here on the radio for the return of the live Ozarks at Large Roots Festival broadcast Friday, August 26th at noon. After more than a year, the Northwest Arkansas Crisis Stabilization Unit is open again in Fayetteville. The University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences will serve as the supervisory agency for the unit. Kristen McAllister, the CSU program director, says the facility will again serve as an alternative to jail or hospital emergency rooms for people in the midst of a mental health crisis. 
My hope is uh, that we will be able to just provide really solid services to individuals that are in the most need. Um, you know, I fully anticipate us being uh, quite busy, um, but being busy means that we're helping um, as best we can in the ways that we know how to. The 16-bed unit will offer law enforcement agencies in several counties, including Washington, Benton, Baxter, Boone, Marion, Newton, Carroll, and Madison, with an option for working with people with psychiatric conditions. The Northwest Arkansas unit closed in June last year after the previous partner, Ozark Guidance, couldn't afford to continue operations after a cut in state funding. Washington County Judge Joseph Wood says units like this one in Fayetteville are an important element in community care. And I think coming up with this concept of having crisis stabilization units in your surrounding states and all, it was it was past time for us to kind of look at that. And so uh, in 2017, the legislators and the governor said, yes, we want to do that exact same thing to give law enforcement officers an option and a tool and also to build or expand our medical community by putting this crisis stabilization in there, relieve some of that um, emergency room pressures, as well as, again, the biggest one is giving law enforcement officers an option for these individuals. It's voluntary, so it's not like you can take and mandate somebody to come, but at least it gives them a tool because they can assess and say, yep, yeah, this is someone who may be going through a bi uh, bipolar break or some kind of mental. We want to go ahead and offer that to them to come to the mental uh, crisis stabilization unit. Judge Wood says he expects the operations will be primarily the same with UAMS as the partner. The director of the unit, Kristen McAllister, says the admissions process is straightforward. We always ask that somebody give us a call first. Um, so individuals will reach out to us by, by phone, um, and that can be, you know, any referral source. So an emergency department, um, law enforcement, maybe it's a self-referral or you're referring a family or friend. Um, they reach out to us by phone first and foremost. Um, our, one of our nurses here at the unit will triage that person to determine, um, is this the right space? Is this, is this the best way for help? Um, and then we would invite them in uh, to do um, an admission. Yesterday was an open house of sorts, with guests and media able to see the facility. The stabilization unit can begin accepting people soon. And McAllister says the four units across the state have, in their infancy, provided a much-needed service. They've been a space, uh, you know, for the community and for members of the community to receive solid help um, and receive that help with care and compassion. And so, you know, I, I think UAMS, that's, that's our drive, is to ensure that, you know, folks are being treated with care and compassion. Um, and, uh, of course, it can be, you know, a ripple effect. We really, we're a growing community, um, and uh, the CSUs um, are certainly... You know, they, they might be perceived as new, but I think that um, they have a lot to offer. The University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences also supervises the Pulaski County Crisis Stabilization Unit in Little Rock. The special session of the Arkansas legislature was exactly as promised. Accelerated tax cuts and funding for school safety measures were passed and the session adjourned. Even if the small number of legislative Democrats wanted to discuss teacher raises and abortion exemptions in the cases of rape and incest. That tidy session is the jumping off point for the weekly conversation between Roby Brock with our partner Talk Business and Politics and John Brummett, a political columnist with the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Roby asked Brummett what he made of the session ending in just three days 
and of not enough lawmakers wanting to discuss teacher raises during that special session. But that got mired in politics. Uh, Republicans were convinced, Republican leadership was convinced that this was just a Democratic political ploy. If they went along with it or let them have a vote, they'd just be playing into their hands and that and that it's not going to affect the uh, elections in the in the fall, and they can deal with it next year. So it just never was going to happen. That aside, whenever the legislature can come to town and do assigned tasks efficiently, even those I disagree with, as I did on the tax cut, without getting into the any of the uh, culture war, fault or all, or other political distraction, that's good. And it's the way we've always uh, seemed to want our legislative sessions to go, well, at least the way B.B. liked them and the way Governor Hutchinson also likes them. In and out, uh, uh, no distraction, get the work done, have consensus in advance. That was the case here. And the Republican leadership simply decided not even to let the Democrats have a uh, make a motion, just to, just to move to, move to go home. And uh, that move to go home sort of reflected that there were a few Republicans, a few, willing to go along with the Democrats on the teacher pay, but not nearly enough. So uh, I would say no harm, no foul, even though we take that much money out of the ongoing state budget uh, with a possible recession looming, a possible harm uh, deferred. But otherwise, good to get them in and out. You know what I mean? understand completely. So just for people who might not uh, be full-time students of the Arkansas legislature, what they do is they kind of have it, the leadership has it set up in advance to recognize someone to adjourn the session before they would recognize someone to try to add things onto the agenda of a special session. We saw this in an earlier special session. Yeah, it's an efficient way to do it. It's a preemptive way to do it. It's the way the leadership can do it. And in this case, I heard from several of the Higher-ups in the, in the legislative leadership, we're just not going to let the Democrats play politics with this issue. Well, politics not always bad. Teacher pay would be good. But that's an entirely separate argument. Uh, and uh, they just cut it off. And it's like they cut off the Democrats' microphone because they didn't want to let them have it. And that's the way it goes. Well, there'll be, uh, that'll be something for the Democrats to rally around in the fall in some of the fall elections here. We'll see how that we shall goes. See. You would, I'm sure we'll hear about it. We have learned over the weekend that there will be a debate on AETN. We think there will be a debate between Sarah Huckabee Sanders and Chris Jones and Libertarian Ricky Dale Harrington uh, in the governor's race. It may be the only debate uh, that we have. Um, What will we learn from that debate? And (laughs) what do you make of the format of that debate in terms of its ability to get some information out there from the candidates? Well, that's a that's a that's a broad question, and to begin, I think I think uh, I'm, I'm I hesitate to be critical of public television or any attempt at public dialogue and voter accountability. I would begin with this point: the AETN debates have, or Arkansas PBS debates, historically have been good tries and. Thank you for doing it and bringing candidates, not just for governor and Senate, but other offices together and putting on a series of debates and televising them. But they've historically been widely unwatched and the format has been cumbersome and ineffective. Uh, You get uh, local journalists brought in as panelists. They come in with predetermined questions. They bring in the off-brand candidates, as I call them, to uh, deflect attention or divert attention from the two main combatants. 
that reduces the number of questions. The format doesn't permit a lot of a lot of uh, interplay among the candidates. The questions tend to be disjointed. There's no follow-up. The, the one that I remember is Clark Tucker, French Hill, and another candidate uh, uh, debating in 2018, and a health care issue never came up, never came up. And there are times when I've watched these debates and I wish that there was a little more fluidity and spontaneity in the panel so that somebody could forego their intended question and and uh, do a follow-up. So it's a safe one for, for a front-runner, as uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders is. However, th- I don't think this is done. Uh, uh, and I think Sanders is being tactical about it in an ex- to an extent. She's getting out there before AETN had announced the debate and before Chris Jones had been told of the, de- of the date and said, well, I'm going to do it on this date. And that's all. If, if and, but, but I'm told by Chris Jones's press spokesman, we don't have a format yet. Uh, we, we, don't, we don't know what the format's going to be. So she's out there. She's done it. She's checked that box. And uh, it's on Jones to go along with what will be a cumbersome incumbent or favorite frontrunner protective format. Or she can say, well, he's just not going to go along. That, that's, she's playing it. She's a, she is a political operative. She's not a policy guru. She, is, uh, she knows how to play these things, and her campaign knows how to do it. And that's, I assume it will happen. Jones is not going to get in a position probably of passing on it, but I assume it will happen. It'll be over an hour's time with the Libertarian candidate there. There may be six questions. They're liable to be disjointed. Everybody will get their message. Jones will try to make an impression, but he'll have limited time. And Sarah Huckabee will say the standard. Uh, we got to fight these federal government. we got to stand up to them. We're going to do teacher raises, but we're going to have to stop teaching this critical race theory. Uh, we need to have school choice. And she'll say we're going to cut taxes. We're going to phase out the income tax, but we're going to do it responsibly by starting with waste, fraud, and abuse, except any waste, fraud, and abuse that the Republicans have anything to do with. And it's it'll, it'll likely be a box-checking exercise for her. That's... That's the way I sort of look forward to it. I hope, I hope the format is more fluid, better, and this will be Jones's only chance for a direct, direct comparison, probably, to show what he can do. And I think he's got some skills. So I hope, I hope uh, my usual pessimism is wrong on that. John Brummett is a political columnist with the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Roby Brock is with our partner, Talk Business and Politics. You can read Brummett's columns at ArkansasOnline.com, and you can hear more from this week's conversation at TalkBusiness.net. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. The Arkansas Times and the Arkansas Cannabis Industry Association present the Medical Marijuana Health Expo Saturday, August 27th from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. at the Northwest Arkansas Convention Center in Springdale. Medical professionals, pharmacists, and local bud tenders will lead seminars on treating a variety of symptoms with medical marijuana. Details and tickets at centralarkansatickets.com. This is Ozarks at Large. After New York Times bestselling author Erica Sanchez induced waves in the still pond of representation for Latina women in literature with her debut novel, I Am Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter, she's just published another piece of prose for hungry audiences. Crying in the Bathroom is a raw memoir about Sanchez's life where no subjects are off limits, from mental health struggles to feminism, sex, shame, beauty standards, ambition, and religion, to name a few. Sanchez writes about being unapologetically herself 
and what that actually looks like throughout her life in a liberating, humorous, and brutally honest voice. Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith spoke with Sanchez via Zoom, and she gave us an honest look behind the writing process for such a deeply personal tale. Well, Erika Sanchez, thank you so much for joining us. Like I said, I'm curious. So this memoir starts with you as a freshly 21-year-old senior year of college, and it ends with you going through this journey of motherhood and at the very end living through a pandemic while living in Chicago, right? Mm-hmm. What was the pro- writing process like finishing a book through a global pandemic? Did it give you time to write and think it over without distractions? Or was it isolating compared to some of the other books you've written? This book was such a journey and I didn't know how it was going to turn out. I had no clue, which is the fun part, really, when you're writing a book that like discovery. And so um, it just evolved into what it is now. And, um, you know, I I thought I'm just I'm going to write essays about things that I really feel passionate about. And and then it just had an arc. And so it became a memoir. And um, at the end, I, you know, I'd be not to give it away, but I'm going to give it away. Um, I become a mother, I get married. um, You know, I I'm back in Chicago. And I really had to to reckon with what that meant, what it meant to be a mother um, and how I wanted to raise my child. And so um, the pandemic was was odd. I, I actually sold the book before the pandemic. And so during it, I was pregnant, um, had terrible morning sickness, had the baby. Um, I did write, but, um, I wrote the last essay during that time, but my focus was my, my daughter and, um, it was really beautiful to have that sort of time. And unfortunately, you know, the, the pandemic, um, really altered the, the ways in which we live and we couldn't have people over and we couldn't really, um, you know, interact with, with people in the outside world. And that was very strange, but like, we were so privileged, you know, we didn't have to suffer the way that a lot of people suffered. And, and for that, I'm, I'm really grateful. Um, and during that time, it was, it was really hard to, to feel like safe in, in our environment, knowing that other people were not, you know, so it was, it was a lot. <laughs> I mean, and everyone has had their own unique experience with, you know, reckoning with this global pandemic. But, you know, as humans, our natural instinct is to to try to find good, to try to find hope, right, in the midst of right. in the midst of all the chaos. And I love that your book touches on that in in your journey. I Thank am you. I'm curious about your writing style. And I'm wondering if it's different for fictional characters than it is when you're writing about your own experiences. Uh, there were, you know, dis- long descriptions of of the setting of where you were, the people around you. But there's also these short, blunt, like, just jokes and, and dead ends that are just hilarious <laughs> and keep you going. Did you find that your writing style was different for this book as compared to to some of the others you've written? Yeah, I mean, I've always had a very cutting style, I would call it. Um, You know, a Mexican daughter is 
is not for, you know, people who want a story about a nice girl, you know, like she's not nice and she makes a lot of mistakes and she swears and whatever. Um, I wanted to get to the messiness of what it means to be alive and to be a girl and to navigate all of these different things. It's not pleasant oftentimes. And, and why should we always have a smile on our face as we go through it? And so, um, I started off, you know, and this, this began in my poetry, you know, I, I've always written poems that are, um, bold, uh, that make people uncomfortable, that are visceral, whatever. Um, and, and that has translated into my prose. And then with this next, this, this last book, I, I just really went there, you know, I had, um, almost no boundaries in a sense where like, I just wanted to write the best possible book and I didn't care how it was going to be done. And a lot of it included being, you know, funny and, and being up and, you know, flawed and weird and um, just really being a human being because oftentimes we're not really seen in, in such a way uh, because society has this image of brown women as, you know, people who uh, clean up after you, people who take care of your children, you know, people who work in factories. And, and that, that view is very limiting and it's inaccurate. And so I, I felt like, you know, I'm going to bust all this shit down, you know. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to swear, but <laughs> and and on that theme, I'm I'm. This is a memoir. It's different from kind of the other the other prose that you've written. Is it difficult to choose what will go in because it's your life now, right? It's a reflection of yourself versus writing a, a book like "I'm Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter," where there are things you wanted to omit, or is it is crying in the bathroom? a vast look into the life of Erika Sanchez. Yeah, I mean, there were so many things I didn't include. People are always like, wow, you wrote about your whole life. And I'm like, nah, actually I didn't. There's so much more. I could write like three more books, but <laughs> I don't want to. It's too much. Um, I'm, I'm tired of myself. I'm going to write fiction. Um, I, I felt like you know, it's, it's deeply personal, but the personal is political, as we all know. Thank you, Audre Lorde. Um, I, I felt that there were going to be women who felt very identified reading this book. And, um, you know, I wrote it with, with me in mind because I needed to heal. Um, and I also, you know, wrote with, with, Latinas in general in mind, because I know so many of us struggle with the same sorts of obstacles. And so that's, that's what I was trying to accomplish. And, you know, I don't care about being likable. I just don't. And that's something that has taken a whole lot of work, but I'm at the point where it's like, I'm living with integrity. I am loved by the people who really matter. Um, I, I'm a person who admits when she's wrong, you know? And so like, why, why try to 
to make myself more uh, digestible. I just, I'm not interested in it, you know? This book, it's raw, it's funny, it's it's candid. Um, and one little bit as I was reading also through the end in the thank you notes, in your notes you thank your editor, um, Georgia Bodenart, by for for pushing you into the uncomfortable, right? Mm-hmm. Were there things that you didn't even think to include in the book until somebody else mentioned them? Or were there things that you knew from the get-go, I know I have to include this? You know, both. I, I, I knew that there were certain things that I had to cover, but also she would point out places where I was kind of um, skirting around the issue. And I was like, I don't want to write that. (laughs) Like I didn't write it for a reason. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. She's like, you have to write about your ex-husband a little bit more. And I was like, fine, you know, and, and she was right. I mean, I, I, I don't really go into a lot of detail about that relationship because I didn't think that it belonged in the book, but um, she was right that there needed to be more context. And so, um, yeah, she has such a, an eagle eye, you know, in, in editing. And I'm really sad that she's no longer my editor because she's now an agent making that money. So I'm happy for her, but like, oh, what are we going to do? How am I going to, you know, write my next book? I don't know. <laughs> well, Erika, I, and touching on an earlier point, before I'd read this book and I'd never, never read a book that was so easily identifiable with some of the, the circumstances and, and cultural background and, and just the funny and, and the good and the bad too. Um, it's just, it's what I needed. It was medicine. Thank um, you. And I'm curious about your your healing. And, and you said that a little bit. What was this writing journey like from the start to the finish? Where were you when you started it in that mm-hmm. healing process? And where were yeah. you when, when it was finished? Well, I started it when I was 30. And I am now 38. Um, I... I was married to my ex-husband at the time and I just, everything changed for me after that. I was like, I can't, I can't keep living lies anymore. And so in, in writing and in like becoming Buddhist and really discovering things about myself, I had to make a lot of changes in my life. And, and that was, um, you know, one of the reasons I, I got a divorce and I, um, I grew a lot as I wrote, cause I started to see connections. I started to see my life in a way that, um, I could, make sense of that I could find meaning in and um towards the end it it was you know painful to write but also really freeing I was like wow I've I've worked through so much in the course of these last you know six years and um a lot of it was actually very painful to write and um I I felt really, you know, re-traumatized by a lot, but also I I was able to see 
so much that I, I, I wasn't able to before uh, in terms of the way that I was living. And um, now I feel, I feel really liberated in many ways. I feel like I, I am more of myself, you know, uh, through writing it. And I, I feel even more audacious than before. I, I love that because you're just, you're finding your way and it, through the good and the bad, especially when you're going through it, it, it doesn't feel like, you know, when will this end? Why is this happening? Uh-huh. You have so many questions, but it's until you go back and reflect on it that, okay, maybe there was sort of like a, a moral of the story or mm-hmm. this, these things happen for a reason. Yeah, it's hard to do that because you just want to be mad at it, you know, and um now I look back, I'm like, oh, it all led me here. Okay. And it wasn't pleasant by any means, but I, I like made meaning from all the things that had happened to me. And that felt really good. Well, Erika Sanchez, Crying in the Bathroom is available now. And as as the blurb puts it well, it it makes you feel like a post-confessional high that comes from talking with your best friends for hours and... Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That was best-selling author Erica Sanchez talking with Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith about her most recently published memoir, Crying in the Bathroom. Support for KUAF comes from the Walmart Museum, open Monday through Saturday, 10 to 8, and noon to 6 on Sunday on the Square in Bentonville. WalmartMuseum.com for more information. Northwest Arkansas is filled with bike trails, more than 250 of them. But the great outdoors and nature-based activities have largely been white-dominated. Ozarks at Large's Anna Pope reports, Arkansas Latinas NBC's goal is to bring more multicultural people into cycling through events, nutrition and health workshops, cycling education, regular bike rides, and technical training. As the sun goes down and the heat of the day becomes less intense, cyclists ride up to the Natural State Brewing Company's parking lot in Rogers. Other cyclists like Olivia Barraza park their vehicles and unhook their bikes from their car's racks to get ready for a road ride. Let, let, me, get to get, let me just grab my bike and we're, gonna, we're just waiting for a little bit more people and see. This is a Wednesday evening routine for the Arkansas Latinas in BC, a nonprofit organization made up of men, women, and families with the vision of sparking joy for cycling in Arkansas's multicultural communities. The group also holds a weekly mountain bike ride. Ready? Ready! One, two, three. After a serious accident involving her son, Barraza says it left her family devastated. To clear her head, she, a mother of four, took a 10-mile bike ride on the Razorback Regional Greenway with her sister and her brother-in-law. I like the benefits that I was getting. I like the way I was feeling. And, you know, because I was a single mom raising four boys and one with disabilities, so I didn't really had anything that uh, give me kind of like uh, a meaning to life other than just uh, dedicate my life to the care of my son. This sporadic ride turned into a passion, a way of release, she says, while walking her bike closer to the group, then pausing to strap on her blue helmet. After this, she joined a women's bike team in Bentonville, but it was missing something. 
you know, it was good. I learned the basics of how to ride in a group, but I noticed that, uh, you know, there was not an other ladies like me. I went to a lot of events, but I didn't feel like, I, I didn't feel really welcome, feel intimidated, but I was enjoyed. I, I, my sister and I, we was riding all the time, but I didn't, you know, there was hardly any diverse cycling team. People of color are far less likely to engage in nature-based recreation, largely because of historic discrimination, according to North Carolina State University. In 2020, 53% of Americans six and over participated in outdoor recreation at least once in the year, according to the 2021 Outdoor Participation Trends Report. In the same report, nearly 75% of outdoor participants were white and 46% were female. To encourage more people from her community to enjoy the region's popular activity and to create a welcoming group for people, Braza formed the Arkansas Latinas in BC in 2019. We had created a sisterhood. We had created a space for women like me with the same physical uh, traits in the f same background, culture background, and just seeing these ladies every Wednesday has, you know, they are inspiring me, you know, they overcome a lot of areas just like me, and now they are faster than me. From 2015 to 2019, cycling on the region's trail network went up 36%, according to the 2019 Northwest Arkansas Trail Usage Monitoring Report. The trail network three years ago had an average of about 200 cyclists daily on weekdays and nearly 380 cyclists per day on weekends, according to the report. Arkansas Latinas in BC has more than 100 members, and Braza says everyone is welcome, regardless of race, distinction of color, background, economic condition, gender, or anything else. This organization rides trails twice a week and provides bikes to those who need one. For Braza, she also wants to bring something new to the group. It's been, it's been okay. BC, um, just putting things together next week. I'm Friday, I'm leaving to Colorado for a bike uh, mechanic training. So I get more prepared to how to fix bikes and I can teach these ladies and pass it on. More and more people arrive to the parking lot, some showing up in the group's hot pink unitard with bright green lettering. Many reconnect as they get ready for the evening's 15 to 20 mile long ride. We have so much fun, time doesn't matter. <laughs> this is Grace Brusuela. She does not quite remember when she joined the group. Initially, she started it to get out of the house. Then she found she did not have to worry about outside appearances. Brusuela just hopped on the bike, and before she knew it, she rode 10 miles. Well, I like to get out, and every time I do, I kind of like to do at least 20, 30 miles at least, you know, but then we do 40, 50, 60, that we get to have fun as well. We stop and just get a drink and talk. For Bisuela, it's not only about biking, but also about building a community and getting people into the activity. Well, no, we just like to road and 
go and get to know people and help if we can. We really like to help little kids to get involved with biking, you know, and kind of teach them the rules. I'm sure they're not going to get hurt on the road. And then our mission, most of all, is that we love to get together and socialize and talk about ourselves and do stuff, enjoy when the weather is pretty. For Ozarks at Large in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 1 at the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Anna Pope. A new documentary from Arkansas PBS explores the importance of soil. Dirt will delve into how Arkansas farmers, ranchers, and others are conserving their soil, water, air, and other natural resources, improving their operations, and helping the environment with sustainability methods. The broadcast premiere of this documentary is Thursday, September 1st. However, there will be a free advanced screening Thursday night beginning at 7 at the Central Arkansas Library System's Ron Robinson Theater in Little Rock. If you'd like more information, myarpbs.org. The Salem Springs Farmers Market, they know about soil, will host local chefs making meals with market ingredients Saturday, August 27th at the market that takes place on Jefferson Street in downtown Siloam. The demonstration will begin at 10 that morning. Samples and recipes will be shared at the conclusion of the prep. Banjo enthusiasts will have an entire weekend and an entire town to enjoy playing or listening. The 2022 convention of All Frets will be in Eureka Springs August 30th through September 1st. All Frets is a nonprofit musical organization comprised of banjo, ukulele, mandolin, and guitar players from around the country, playing music ranging from ragtime and early jazz to country and classical. There will be free concerts Wednesday, August 31st, and Thursday, September 1st in Basin Park, both afternoons from 2 until 4. Each night of the convention, there will be multi-act concerts taking place at the best western end of the Ozarks, each of the three nights from 7 until 10, each of those concerts at uh, the Best Western Inn of the Ozarks will cost $5. I've been there by accident on the All Frets weekend. You're going to see banjos and hear banjos all over Eureka Springs. Spend some time at our area farmer's markets and you'll hear music. While we won't be mistaken in northwest Arkansas for Cambridge, New Orleans, or Nashville when it comes to buskers and outdoor musicians, it's not unexpected to hear music on the corner. But maybe it's unexpected on a Thursday at the lunch hour and it to be bagpipes. But this is what you heard on Dixon Street if you were there last Thursday midday as dozens of parents with new and returning students walked about. Sounds of Dixon Street in Fayetteville last Thursday afternoon. A reminder, Ozarks at Large is available to you as a podcast. It's absolutely free and you can download or subscribe by going to any of your preferred podcast distributors. You can also find past editions of our show as well as individual stories and interviews at ozarksatlarge.com. You can hear the most recent edition of Ozarks at Large by asking your smart speaker to please play 
Ozarks at Large. And then you can always take us with us, with you, by using the free KUAF app. There's a special Ozarks at Large button there. Hi, I'm Aisha Roscoe from NPR's Weekend Edition. The voices, the stories, the lives of your friends, your neighbors, as well as those you don't know, can be heard on KUAF Public Radio every day. And your voice matters, too. We want to hear from you using KUAF Connect. Just get the KUAF app for iPhone, click the Connect button, and leave your message for the KUAF community. Or call 479-575-6577. At KUAF Public Radio, your voice matters. For more information, go to KUAF.com. KUAF, all about live music. We mentioned earlier in the program that on Friday, August 26th, the Ozarks at Large team is teaming up with uh, the Fayetteville Roots Festival team and the Fayetteville Public Library. We'll have a live Roots Festival, Ozarks at Large, noon, Friday, August 26th, in the new event center at the Fayetteville Public Library. You are invited. It is absolutely free. Call in sick to work, or you've got enough time now to think about it. Just ask for the day off, because after our live radio show, there's like four more hours of free music from Roots Festival's performers in that same space. We will see you Friday, August 26th, beginning at noon at the library. If you can't be there, you can join us right here on 91.3 KUAF. Oh, and speaking of joining us here at 91.3 KUAF, come to our lobby Friday for the next lunch hour. Performer is Avian Aliyah. The food will be from Eat My Catfish. This, too, free. It's the latest edition of the lunch hour at KUAF. Just join us. The doors will open at noon. Music starts about 1220. Did I mention it's free? Great music, great food right here at the Carver Center for Public Radio. We look... Well, that's back-to-back Fridays. We're going to be giving you free music. We look forward to seeing you. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Hinesville. Contributors this Tuesday included Jacqueline Froelich, Rachel Sanchez-Smith, Anna Pope, and Roby Brock. Additional material today from the hardworking news team at KUAR, Public Radio for Little Rock in Central Arkansas. Timothy Dennis, once again, produced today's program. And our operations director at KUAF is Pete Harpin. Pete also produces the Community Spotlight that you can hear every weekday morning at 6.30 and 8.30 during Morning Edition. You can find out all you want about KUAF by just going to KUAF.com. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for your continued support of Public Radio KUAF and Ozarks at Large. We return tomorrow with a new edition of our program from the Carver Center for Public Radio. I'm Kyle Kellums. We'll talk again soon.